Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You can download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast just about everywhere, including iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, Audio Boom, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. The show's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. Coming up on Space Time, the first evidence showing how supermassive black holes could be formed, a new dwarf planet discovered beyond Neptune, and Rosetta's historic mission to a comet slated to end on September 30. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Astronomers have discovered evidence for an unusual kind of black hole which would have been born early in the history of the universe and could well have provided the seeds for today's supermassive black holes. While astronomers have a good handle on how stellar mass black holes are formed, mysteries always surrounded their larger counterparts, the supermassive black holes found at the centres of most if not all galaxies. When giant stars, much more massive than our sun, die at the end of their lives in powerful supernova explosions, their stellar course can collapse down to form super-dense objects known as neutron stars. However, the very biggest stars can collapse down beyond the neutron star stage into an object so immensely dense and with such a powerful gravitational field that nothing, not even light or time, can escape. Scientists call these objects black holes, or more precisely stellar mass black holes, because their progenitors were stars. However, much bigger black holes with millions to billions of times the mass of our Sun can be found at the centres of galaxies. These are the supermassive black holes. There's one called Sagittarius A star at the centre of our own galaxy, the Milky Way. And up until now, scientists have been debating exactly how they're likely to form. Now, a new study reported in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society may finally be bringing scientists closer to an answer. Aaron Smith and Volker Brohm from the University of Texas in Austin, together with Avi Loeb from the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, have been studying a recently discovered unusual source of intense radiation. They believe the radiation is being powered by what they call a direct collapse black hole, a type of object first predicted by theorists over a decade ago, but until now never actually seen. Brohm describes their discovery as a cosmic miracle, providing the precise set of conditions present half a billion years after the Big Bang to allow these behemoths to emerge. This would have been the only time throughout the entire 13.8 billion year history of the universe that the conditions would have been just right for direct collapse black holes to form. These direct collapse black holes are important because they could be the solution to a long-standing puzzle in astronomy namely how supermassive black holes formed in the early universe. You see, there's strong evidence for their existence back then. That's because they're needed to provide the power for highly luminous quasars, which have been detected coming from the young universe. The problem is, there are several real issues which, theoretically at least, should be preventing their formation. As well as that, applying the conventional growth process to one of these black holes would be far too slow. Astronomers think they know how supermassive black holes weighing in at millions of suns grow at the heart of most galaxies in today's universe. They get started as a seed black hole, created when an extremely dense massive star collapses. 
This seed black hole may have a mass of maybe 100 suns. Slowly over time it pulls in more and more gas from its surroundings, progressively becoming more and more massive and eventually it may merge with other seed black holes and continue growing. The entire process is called accretion. The problem is the accretion theory can't explain supermassive black holes in extremely distant, therefore extremely young quasars. Visible to us despite being billions of light years away, quasars are among the most distant objects ever seen in the universe. The quasar's incredible brightness comes from matter spiralling into the supermassive black hole, heating to millions of degrees and creating powerful jets which shine as beacons over distances of billions of light years. These early galaxies may have contained the very first stars to shine after the Big Bang. And although these stars would have all collapsed to form black holes, they don't work as early quasar seeds because there's no surrounding gas for the black hole to feed on. That's because that gas would have been blown away by the powerful stellar winds generated by the hot newly formed stars. For decades, astronomers have called this conundrum the quasar seed problem. Back in 2003, Broman Loeb came up with a theoretical idea that gets an early galaxy to form a supermassive seed black hole by suppressing the otherwise prohibitive energy input from star formation. The astronomers dubbed this process direct collapse. It begins with a primordial cloud of hydrogen and helium in a sea of ultraviolet radiation. You then crunch this cloud in the gravitational field of a dark matter halo. Normally the cloud should be able to cool and collapse and form stars. However, the ultraviolet photons are keeping the gas hot, thereby suppressing any possible star formation. And this could provide the desired near-miraculous conditions of collapse without fragmentation. As the gas gets more and more compact, eventually you have the conditions for a massive black hole. The thing is this set of cosmic conditions is exquisitely sensitive to a specific time period early in the universe's history. The process simply does not happen in galaxies today. Typically the cold gas reservoir in nearby galaxies, like the Milky Way, is consumed mostly by star formation. However, the theory proposed by the authors suggests that the conditions in the first generation of galaxies were different. Instead of making many normal stars, these galaxies formed a single supermassive star at their centre that ended up collapsing into a seed black hole. And so the gas in these environments was used to feed the seed black hole rather than make lots of normal stars. Brohm and Loeb published their hypothesis in 2003. Now, together with Aaron Smith, Brohm and Loeb have been studying a galaxy called CR7, identified in the Hubble Space Telescope's Cosmos Survey. Hubble spied CR7 at a distance of about a billion years after the Big Bang. Follow-up observations of CR7 using both the Keck Observatory in Hawaii and also the Very Large Telescope in Chile uncovered some extremely unusual features in the light spectrum coming from the galaxy. Specifically, a certain hydrogen line in the spectrum, known as Lyman Alpha, was several times brighter than expected. And remarkably, the spectrum also showed an unusually bright helium line. Aaron Smith says whatever's driving the source is very hot, at least 100,000 Kelvin, and that's hot enough to ionise helium. These and other unusual features in the spectrum, such as the absence of any detected lines from elements heavier than helium, together with the source's distance and therefore its cosmic epoch, meant that it must be coming from either a cluster of primordial stars or, alternatively, a supermassive black hole likely formed by direct collapse. Follow-up computer simulations have resulted in the star cluster scenario failing spectacularly, while on the other hand the direct collapse black hole models performed well. NASA has recently announced the discovery of two additional direct collapse black hole candidates based on observations with the Chandra X-ray Observatory. 
Aaron Smith says it seems like astronomers are converging on direct collapse black holes as a model for solving the quasar C problem. Direct collapse black holes were theorized decades ago, but really we only have strong evidence for them um, recently. So the difference between a normal supermassive black holes is just the formation, whether it grew from an individual star or from a very large gas cloud that collapsed to a very massive black hole directly in one go. Tell me about CR7. So CR7, this is um, a galaxy that's observed in the in one of Hubble's deep fields that they have been looking at for a long time. It's called the Cosmos Survey. And so what's interesting about this is there are you know thousands of galaxies in these fields, and it's hard to to sort through them and figure out which ones are interesting and which ones, you know, might be contaminants like stars or galaxies at, at lower redshift, for example. But observers have combined certain techniques to, to figure out which ones are particularly interesting. And the one that signaled this out as a smoking gun was the Lyman Alpha line, which is a signature of hydrogen gas. The importance for spectral analysis. This is one of the most prominent lines in all of astronomy. So a line would be, if you look at the light in frequency space, meaning there's different frequencies that the light comes in, different colors, there would be like a large bump in excess at a certain frequency. And this comes from quantum mechanics, actually. So in every hydrogen atom, there's one proton and one electron um, when it's neutral. And so when that electron goes from the first excited state and drops to the ground state, it releases a photon of a specific frequency, and that's um, Lyman alpha. So Lyman being someone's name and alpha being like number one. This um, hydrogen gas is in every galaxy, but there's a difference in this galaxy because it's almost like finding the brightest galaxies at a certain time that you can. So if you're looking off in the distance at the mountain peaks, it's easy to find the, the very tallest mountain. And so that's what they've done here is they found the, the brightest Lyman Alpha emitter that they could find, which is just a galaxy that has this hydrogen signature. And there were two sorts of scenarios for what could explain this Lyman Alpha signature, one of them being a possibly star cluster, the other being a direct collapsed black hole. Yes, exactly. And last year when this was originally, when the observations came out, the original authors just called it POP3 light, which really means that it would be interesting if, if this was stars that was making this, because that's an exotic scenario where the stars themselves, we call them population three, are metal free. These are the very so, first primordial stars in the universe. They were very different from the stars we see around us today because of their low metal, well, no metallicity. Exactly. Yeah. And they would have been much more massive and that would have kind of fit the bill for this bright line in Alpha. And there was also a bright helium line as well. And that really tells you that the gas is very hot, hot enough to ionize helium, which would be um, about 100,000 degrees Celsius. So with that extremely powerful source in this galaxy, then you know, there's, it could be stars or it could be black hole. Now, the problem for this to have these pop three stars at this time is this is actually kind of too late for that scenario. And this galaxy is observed at about a billion years after the Big Bang, and that's actually a bit too late for pop three stars. It's not impossible, but highly unlikely to get. You'd actually need about 10 million suns worth of pop three stars. So it's a, 
It's a tall order. <laughs> when do we think the first stars formed? About, what is it, 300 million years after the Big Bang? Yeah, that's about when they started. And they could continue in isolated pockets, you know, in, in very extremely rare cases out to about a billion years. Um, but, yeah, we typically think of them as 300 million years to about 600 million years. It looks like NASA have already found other possible examples of, of this as well now. There are, there are a couple more from Chandra that they're looking at. Yes, this is both studies are independent, meaning they use different methods to determine whether these are direct collapsed black holes or not. And so the CR7 is very, I'd say, a little bit more better understood because there's been quite a bit of this spectroscopic follow-up with large telescopes. We've um, looked at this one object in detail. And the, the NASA study, they had a clever method where instead of looking at this thing spectroscopically, what they do is they look at it in different color filters. So it's like putting on green glasses or blue glasses or red glasses. Um, they they kind of look at that thing and it's certain brightness in, in one pair of glasses and then it's much fainter in another pair of glasses. And what that would do is it tells you that these are kind of outliers. These objects are, they don't fit the normal population. And so they, they propose that these they have a model and, and it sort of fits the model of the direct collapse black hole. And the beauty of the direct collapse black hole is that it explains the problem with quasars in the early universe. Quasars are these uh, powerful beams of energy. They're some of the earliest things we can see in the universe. And it's always been a puzzle how the quasar could actually form if there wasn't any gas for the black hole in the early universe to consume. Exactly. So the problem there is one of timing. When you form a black hole from stars, those stars provide feedback or the, the ultraviolet radiation kind of evaporates away the gas and, and it can't grow the black hole very well. And so direct collapse black hole gets around this problem because there were no stars that formed. Just early on, the black hole itself was kind of the first object in this galaxy. We've recently seen some interesting developments in gravitational wave astronomy. We've had a couple of spikes now, thanks to the interferometers that have been developed in uh, Louisiana and Washington State. Uh, we've had some interesting spikes there, about three of them now. But the first one was really interesting because it seems to point to a primordial black holes as a possible source for these colliding or merging black holes that they picked up. Primordial black holes, these are different to uh, the ones you're looking at, aren't they? Um, yes. So mostly it's the mass. The LIGO observation, each black hole was around 30 times the mass of the sun, so that's 60 in total. Um, and the supermassive black holes would be about a million solar masses. They're a lot closer, too. Oh, yes, a lot closer. Uh, but the LIGO observation is very exciting um, because those black holes, they don't have to be primordial, but primordial or population three stars kind of fit the bill, and it's a natural explanation to do that. Yeah, a good example of what we were just saying is that the second set of black hole mergers, which were picked up by LIGO, there you're looking at much smaller stellar mass black holes involved in that, which actually gave them more data to work with, which was a slower merger. So it gave them a bit more information to look at. Yes, there's another interesting thing is that there are very massive stars that are not population three. So they, they have metals, and we look at these stars in our own galaxy, and you know they're about 100 times more massive than the sun and really we don't have a clear explanation of how they got that big that's an open problem in astronomy right now you know all these different areas they all kind of connect it's interesting to see that's aaron smith from the university of texas at austin
Well, it's not the sought-after mysterious Planet Nine, but a new dwarf planet has been discovered orbiting the Sun out beyond Neptune. Astronomers spotted the distant frozen world using the Canada-France-Hawaii telescope on Mauna Kea. The new object, designated 2015 RR245, is about 700 kilometres wide, and it has one of the largest orbits of any known dwarf planet. It's currently located about 12 billion kilometres from the Sun. That's some 80 times further away than the Earth. Astronomers became even more excited when they studied this object's orbit, finding that it takes it up to 120 times further from the Sun than the Earth. Dr J.J. Cavillas from the National Research Council of Canada first spotted RR245 back in February 2016 while studying images taken as part of the Outer Solar System Origin Survey. RR245 is the largest discovery and the only dwarf planet so far detected in the Outer Solar System Origin Survey, which has found more than 500 new trans-Neptunian objects. Previous surveys have mapped almost all of the brighter dwarf planets. In fact, RR245 may be one of the last large worlds beyond Neptune to be found until larger telescopes come online in the mid-2020s. It's thought the vast majority of dwarf planets like RR245 were destroyed or thrown out of the solar system in the chaos that probably ensued as the giant planets Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune moved out to their present orbital positions. In fact, RR245 may be one of the few dwarf planets that have survived to the present day, along with Pluto and Aries, the two largest known dwarf planets. RR245 now circles the Sun, among the remnant population of tens of thousands of much smaller trans-Neptunian worlds, most of which orbit unseen. Trans-Neptunian objects are frozen worlds, comets and icy debris circling the Sun beyond the orbit of Neptune. These include Kuiper Belt objects, which comprise bodies circling the Sun in a ring with an average orbital distance to the Sun somewhere between about 30 and 55 astronomical units. An astronomical unit being the average distance between the Earth and the Sun, which is about 150 million kilometres or 8 light minutes. Kuiper Belt objects usually have close to circular orbits with small inclinations from the ecliptic, that is the plane of the solar system. Kuiper Belt objects are usually either unaffected by the gravitational perturbations of Neptune or they're in gravitational resonances locked in precise orbital ratios with Neptune. Another group of bodies orbiting the Sun in this region are called scattered disk objects and are differentiated from Kuiper Belt objects in that their orbits have been scattered by Neptune's gravitational forces. Current research suggests that the class of icy planetesimals called centaurs, which orbit the Sun between Jupiter and Neptune, may simply be scattered disk objects that have been thrown into the inner reaches of the solar system by Neptune's gravity, making them cis-Neptunian rather than trans-Neptunian scattered objects. Further out is the hypothetical Oort cloud, a theoretical cloud of predominantly icy planetesimals believed to surround the Sun out to distances of somewhere between 50,000 and 200,000 astronomical units. That's between 0.8 and 3.2 light-years, which would place some of them more than two-thirds of the way to the next star system. The Oort cloud, if it exists, is divided into two major regions, a disc-shaped inner Oort cloud and a spherical outer Oort cloud, both of which lie beyond the heliosphere and well into interstellar space. However, there's a strong possibility, one which I also support, that there is no Oort cloud at all, and that really just refers to the collection of icy planetesimals and other debris floating around in interstellar space which are occasionally grabbed by the Sun's gravitational pull. Worlds that journey far from the Sun have exotic geology with landscapes made of many different frozen materials as shown during New Horizons' recent flyby of the Pluto system. 
RR245 has been on its highly elliptical orbit for at least 100 million years and is now approaching its perihelion, or closest orbital position to the Sun, at which point it will be about 5 billion kilometres, 34 times the Earth-Sun's distance, which it will reach around 2096. However, because the dwarf planet has only been observed for one of the 700 Earth years it takes to orbit the Sun, exactly where it came from and exactly how its orbit will evolve over time is still unknown. However, its precise orbit will be refined over coming years, after which time RR245 will be given a formal name by the International Astronomical Union. The European Space Agency has announced that its Rosetta spacecraft will finally complete its mission on September 30, performing a controlled descent to the surface of Comet 67P, Sheremov Gerasimenko. This pioneering probe made history in August 2014, becoming the first spacecraft to enter orbit around a comet. Three months later, Rosetta made history again by releasing its tiny fillet lander, the first spacecraft to land on the surface of a comet. After swinging around the Sun, the 5-kilometre-wide comet 67P is now heading back towards Jupiter on its relentless 7-Earth-year orbit through the inner solar system. As it heads out towards the orbit of Jupiter, there's less and less sunlight to power Rosetta's solar arrays, which provide energy to the spacecraft's instruments and onboard systems. Also, the further out you go, there's a greater reduction in downlink bandwidth for scientific data. Combined with an ageing spacecraft and payload that have endured the harsh environment of space for over 12 years, not least two years close to a dusty comet, this all means Rosetta is reaching the end of its natural life. Unlike in 2011 when Rosetta was placed in the 31-month hibernation for the most distant part of its journey, this time it's riding alongside the comet. Comet 67P, Sheremov Gerasimenko's maximum distance from the Sun, is over 850 million kilometres. That's further than Rosetta has ever journeyed before. There's simply not enough power at its most distant point to guarantee that Rosetta's heaters would be able to keep the spacecraft warm enough to survive. Instead of risking a much longer hibernation that's unlikely to be survivable anyway, and after consultation with Rosetta's science team, mission managers decided that Rosetta should follow its lander fillet down onto the comet's surface. The final hours of descent will enable Rosetta to make many once-in-a-lifetime measurements, including very high-resolution imaging, which may even discover what happened to the fillet lander when it reached the surface and precisely where it is. Communications between mission managers and Rosetta will cease, however, once the orbiter reaches the surface and its operations end. Rosetta's operators plan to begin changing the spacecraft's trajectory in August ahead of the grand finale. That'll be done through a series of elliptical orbits which will take it progressively closer and closer to the comet's surface. Planning this phase is in fact far more complex than it was for Philae's landing. The last six weeks will be especially challenging as Rosetta flies concentric orbits around the comet. In many ways, this will be even riskier than the final descent itself. You see, the closer Rosetta gets to the comet, the more influence 67P's non-uniform gravity will have, requiring mission managers to have far more delicate control on the trajectory, and therefore more manoeuvres, meaning planning cycles, will have to be executed on far shorter timescales. A number of dedicated manoeuvres in the closing days of the mission will conclude with one final trajectory change at a distance of about 20 kilometres, about 12 hours before impact, putting the spacecraft onto its final descent. The region to be targeted for Rosetta's impact is still under discussion, as the spacecraft's operators and scientists examine various trade-offs with several different trajectories now being examined. 
the impact is expected to take place at about 50 centimetres per second. That's about half the landing speed of Philae back in November 2014. Rosetta's high-gain antenna will likely no longer be pointing towards Earth during impact, making any potential communications virtually impossible. In the meantime, however, science will continue as normal, although last month the spacecraft experienced a safe mode while only 5 kilometres from the comet because of dust confusing Rosetta's navigation system. Rosetta did recover, but mission controllers can't rule out this happening again before the planned end of mission. And that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, Audio Boom, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. For more, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Just search for Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This show is also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts or Audio Boom. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. This month, exploring NASA's Juno mission to the King of Planets. 